0: Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome back, everybody, to another Hidden History Happy Hour. My pal Alex has disappeared again. I don't know where he is. I don't know what he's doing, but he'll be back soon. Meanwhile, we still have the pleasure of his books, Lessons from History. And the. by the way, the title hasn't gotten any better over the months, More Lessons from History. And I can assure you, the third volume, potentially called History 3, uh, is well underway. But in the meantime, we're back with another guest host, my pal Nir Yarden. Welcome back, Nir. It's great to see you. Hey, Brian.
1: Great to see you. Thank you.
0: Cheers. Now, I want to talk today about one of uh, my favorite stories from the original, or as I like to call it now, the OG, Lessons from History, uh, Alex's book. And it involves one of your putative heroes, American President Ronald Reagan. And the reason I say putative is I don't know if anyone could figure this out from our last episode together, but you tend to be a little bit of a asshole is not exactly the right word. Let's say provocateur. And I recall, I don't know if you remember this, but very early on in our relationship, which started back in the mid eighties, or late um, uh, uh, eighties Bill Clinton had just been elected president. And uh, I was with in New York with a bunch of people who were like diehard, huge Bill Clinton supporters and you just sat down at the table and said, Ronald Reagan was the greatest fucking president who <laughs> ever lived. Do you remember that? I do now.
1: And all, the, and all the pain it caused around that table, for sure. Now, did you
0: actually think that? No, I was just trying to get, your- get under your friend's skin.
1: Actually, I didn't think Bill Clinton turned out to be such a bad president, honestly. I, I think he actually did a decent job. So,
0: Well, I agree. I mean, I worked for the guy for six years um, as a civil servant. I voted for him twice. I think that, and by the way, uh, for our younger viewers, who were t- the person we're talking about, William Jefferson Clinton, uh, fantastic hillbilly who was also elected president of the United States, and you probably know him as the husband of Hillary Clinton. But he was our president from 1993 to 2001. I worked uh, for the CIA while he was president. I think he he actually, I agree, he was a very good president. I think the, the stuff he did with his intern, um, he probably should have resigned. Like any CEO in America who got caught on that shit would have had to have resigned. But I don't think it was impeachable right. by our Congress, which he was.
1: Right. And that was 25 years ago. I mean... Times have changed, right? The well, yeah, now, or not.
0: well, yes, that, and also uh, we just uh, impeach whenever, you know, a couple of yeah. impeachments every yeah. administration. I'm not saying that necessarily, I'm not saying Trump deserved it or didn't deserve it, but I am saying now it's just going to be a tool. Every, every, every administration, someone's getting impeached.
1: By the way, I just want to mention about Bill Clinton. The one movie clip that I saw about him that gave me more insight as to that guy's intelligence. Do you ever remember years ago, there was a movie on crossword puzzles and like conventions on crossword
0: puzzles. I am quite certain I do not remember. You don't remember that, okay.
1: You know, he was like a genius crossword puzzle guy. He would do the New York Times in like two seconds. It was unbelievable. And they they filmed him as part of this thing. And he's just an extraordinarily talented guy when it comes to crossword puzzles. I mean, just amazing. And and he was part of this film and nobody else saw it. I guess I was the only one to see it.
0: Hmm, yeah, I don't know anything about that. But I'd hate to think of uh, what he would write for a five letter use for cigar. <laughs> I, I don't I don't want to even think about that. But uh, but let's talk about Ronald Reagan. So um, so as, as I mentioned, I served uh, Bill Clinton. I also served George W. Bush and uh, and Ronald Reagan. I was a very young uh, CIA officer under under Reagan. And Reagan came to office in a time when uh, a thing that we totally forgot about until the last couple of years, inflation was happening. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, literally, like my parents were excited that they got an 18% home loan. So just very different times. The, they, the famous phrase was the malaise of the United States. Everyone was kind of depressed. And like, there was a lot of talk about how the presidency was too big a job for just one man. And then here comes this actor from Hollywood Uh, sweeping into the White House, and it's almost like you could have a stand-up comedian become the president of a country and lead one of the most righteous wars in modern history successfully. It's crazy, right? But somehow he did it.
1: Well, I actually think the times back then were a lot like the times we're living now. You had a country coming out of Vietnam, bad inflation, bad economic situation that was adrift. It, it, It was sort of lost its moral bearings. And Times have changed, obviously, different factors involved, but a lot of those same characteristics I feel are indicative of what we are, this society today. We're more divided than we've ever been before, clearly. Um, but there are a lot of characteristics associated with the 1970s in America that I think have applicability now. So when you think yeah. about that actor, who, by the way, was the governor of California. Exactly. For two yeah. times, so.
0: and, a, and a negotiator, and yes, he, yeah. he had other jobs.
1: Um, on too. But, but The ability to come in and and sort of reorient or um, take a country that was adrift, which a lot of people felt it was, and energize it, is not to be dismissed easily. His first term, second term, there were all sorts of health issues and things that kicked in, and I think it's very important. You know, yeah, and
0: and I I think there's a lot to be said. for just decisiveness you know uh, I, I like the aphorism a good decision today is better than a perfect decision six months from now and he just it was in stark contrast to our leaders in the 70s Republican and Democrat he just made decisions right and you know some were good some were not so good but it gave the country this sense of forward momentum and now right. there's somebody in charge who we can go kind of live our lives and not you know worry so much about what's happening every day and to that end Near, I would like to tell the story, Chapter 71, and this one's entitled Reagan and the Air Traffic Controllers. And I'm going to do this just like Alex does, which is to say, I'm just going to read it right from the book. Um, I'm not going to put any rhetorical flourish on it. I'm just going to read it, and then we'll talk about it. This is the story of Ronald Reagan's confrontation with the powerful union, the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization, or PATCO. PATCO had been militating about pay and conditions for some time Before the 1980 election, the Reagan campaign had indicated support for some of their concerns. Now, recall that Reagan, uh, now I'm adding this, this is not in the book, but recall that Reagan was a labor negotiator with the Screen Actors Guild back in a prior career, in addition to being uh, governor of California. So in any event, uh, this might have given the PACCO air traffic controllers greater hopes about the prospects of their demands being met under Reagan than under his predecessor, Jimmy Carter. If so, they were wrong. In 1981 the new Reagan administration offered the air traffic controllers a package of pay increases and enhanced benefits that would have seen them better paid than their private sector counterparts. The offer was refused. The air traffic controllers must have thought that the government simply could not cope without them and that the withdrawal of their labors would produce paralysis that an administration simply could not bear. There are later echoes of this as Alex in the UK with regard to our train drivers, of course. Paco lost in court and were ordered to return to work. Over 11,000 of them refused to do so. So Reagan simply dismissed them all in one fell swoop. He also banned them from working in any federal position for the rest of their lives, which, says Alex, does seem rather spiteful. Rather than the system falling over, positions were plugged with supervisors, transferred personnel, and military operators. In indicating that a government will not be held ransom, there is an important message here, says Alex. Confronted by recalcitrant and powerful miners, Edward Heath asked at a snap general election, who runs Britain? In his case, the electorate's answer was resoundingly, not you. (laughs) But still, the thrust of his question seems right. The lesson here is not merely about strength. It's about preparation. If you intend to force someone to work, the law must be on your side, and you must have an alternative available. If you're going to have your bluff called, you better be ready. Whether the workers be, say, air traffic controllers you wish to work for less money than they demand, or those undertaking hard and poorly paid work in nursing homes who you wish to compulsorily vaccinate at risk of their positions, you've got to have a backup plan if they say no. So this is Alex's story. I will say I disassociate myself with the comment about the nursing homes, but I do find it to be very instructive. And this was, this was how Reagan was. I mean, he always, um, you know, he was kind of portrayed a lot in our media as being sort of befuddled and, you know, not really on top of things. And I take your point in the second term, there were some health issues, but, but the guy always had a plan. He didn't, you know, some, a lot of times what he did seemed very random, but it really wasn't. Right.
1: By the way, one of the takeaways I got from the story was when you read who the substitute air controller guys were, thank God I didn't fly at that time. (laughs) That was a scary proposition.
0: Um, Well, the military pilots were probably okay.
1: Right. Look, I I agree with you. This country used to give people like presidents and, you know, that when I think of the early 80s, I think of Paul Volcker, too, basically killed inflation and took this country to some painful places. You're talking about 18% in you know, interest rates to get rid of inflation once and for all, but it worked and it put the country in a more solid footing. I've always think inflation is what kills countries. It kills the spirits of people. It's just, you know, it worked well in
0: Weimar Germany. Right. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Um, And it used to be a process where a guy like Reagan or Volcker or Clinton or whoever had room to be able to do stuff and implement stuff. I'm not sure that exists anymore. Um, it's a very it's a much more bureaucratic oversight types process now in washington could it could could a joe biden or a republican president do what ronald reagan did to that union in the early 80s i doubt it today i doubt it
0: well i get what you're saying but there was that time in 2022 where President Biden and the Congress voted together to stop a nationwide rail strike right in, right around that's the true. holidays. But that's yeah. a little bit different because it's pursuant to a whole statutory framework, which may have even been passed in result uh, as a result of what happened with the PACO situation with Reagan. But you're right. Um, decisive action seems less and less possible now, at least in domestic affairs in the United States foreign policy i mean we've been pretty damn decisive with regard to ukraine mm-hmm. and um, and i don't think too many people would have predicted that we would have been able to pull that off but
1: i would agree with you but look at a, look at a situation like immigration how long has immigration reform been discussed wherever you fall out on the political issue and nothing gets done and yeah. and you know
0: and that just... is a perfect example of what i was saying which is both sides and most importantly the lobby groups that are sucking off the government teed on both sides They really want the issue more than they want the solution. I mean, Mm -hmm. George W. Bush, who I served, and John McCain and the Democrats at the time had a comprehensive solution to immigration. Mm -hmm. But then the interest groups got involved and torpedoed the whole thing. Same thing on gun control. There's an obvious compromise to be made on gun regulation in the United States that's entirely consistent with the Bill of Rights, which is... You restrict assault weapons, you restrict these advanced huge magazines, right. then you much more open up the mental health system to law enforcement uh, knowledge. And and it's it's obvious, but nobody is willing to give up the fundraising advantage. I hate to say it, being cynical, right. of having the issue out there. It's kind of di- disgusting, actually.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you see the same things in England, or is that a different...
0: I, you know, we'll we'll have to ask Alex when he comes back from his extended hiatus he's around <laughs> the world. Um, but I I actually don't, you know, as an outside observer, and I'm sure I'll get corrected next week. But as an outside observer, I don't think the lobbying industry is quite as well developed or quite as cynical in the UK as it is in the US. But we'll right. find out next week, and that brings us, folks, to the end of this episode and thank you so much near yarden for once again being my co-host it's a great pleasure we'll have you on again great seeing you thank you cheers thank you for listening to the hidden history happy hour podcast don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app and if you have questions comments or suggestions for topics you can find us on twitter or on our website hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com we look forward to joining you next time much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Corr, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle. Without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers.